How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, uh, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give everyone the opportunity to make sure that you are in fellowship and ready to focus on the teaching of the word. Scripture says that we are in a battle and we're either walking with the enemy or we're not. Pretty strong terms. We're either walking by the spirit or we're walking by the flesh, the sin nature, one of three enemies that we have in the spiritual life. And too often we treat the enemy of the sin nature uh, sort of like the uh, European nations and President Obama treat the enemy of Iran. We want to cuddle up to our sin nature. And that's not the right attitude. We are in a battle where to put to death the deeds of the flesh. We do sin, but we should not justify, excuse, rationalize it. But we do need to confess it. Scripture says if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer and then I'll give you the, uh, and then um, I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful we can come to you this evening. We pray for our nation. We pray for our leaders. We know that there are many leaders who are who are oriented towards the destruction of this nation. They don't believe it's necessarily destruction of the nation because in the way that they have declared right to be wrong and wrong to be right, they think that they're actually taking us in a direction that will make us a, a, a better nation. But it will destroy the foundations. It goes against the Constitution. It goes against everything that made this country great, and it will end up destroying this nation. The only hope is your word, a transformation uh, on the part of the people, and that can only come about as God the Holy Spirit transforms us uh, from the inside out. And the only ultimate solution is your word. Although there are uh, millions of solid believers in this country, people who know the truth and understand it, and we need to be involved as much as we can in the affairs of government, Yet ultimately we know that that is not the final and ultimate solution. The ultimate solution lies in your word. And much of it will start with us as believers, that we focus on your word and make it a priority, and that we understand that there is no alternative to your word, that there is a, a, a call upon us from your word that we are to exclusively depend upon it, commit to it, because it is your word. And it is the word of the creator who made things the way they are and that we need to align our thinking with your word. So, Father, we pray that you would uh, strengthen this nation. We pray that you would strengthen us and our resolve to be consistent and faithful as believers and to press on to spiritual maturity. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to First uh, Samuel chapter 2. We have made our way down to past the, the opening him of of uh, Hannah. The narrative resumes in verse 11 from verse 28. So if we look at the end of verse 28, 
we see that uh, that when Samuel was about four to five years of age, that her his parents brought him to Shiloh, Shiloh as it is pronounced in Hebrew, brought him to Shiloh. And to, because he is dedicated to the service of the Lord because of the vow that uh, his mother took, and so she brings him to serve the Lord uh, with Eli, the high priest, at the tabernacle in Shiloh. And the narrative then picks up in verse 11 of chapter 2. What's interesting in this next section is that it goes from 2, uh, 2.11 down through verse 36, the rest of this chapter is essentially a contrast between Samuel, who is serving the Lord on the one hand, and the sons of Eli, who are serving themselves on the other hand. And so we see a contrast between the person who is serving the Lord, basing his life on who and what God is and what God has said and mandated in Scripture devoted to the Lord versus those who are devoted to self. It's the same sort of polarity that we see in every other area of life. We either walk by the Spirit or we walk by the flesh. We're either living on the basis of divine viewpoint or on the basis of human viewpoint. Uh, there is uh, There are these only the, the two options. The options in life follow this binary path, one or the other. And it's not, a, we, people often think that it's a mix of both, but whenever we uh, blend uh, leaven with the lump, a little leaven leavens the whole lump, it permeates it and destroys it. How much cyanide does it take to render a glass of water toxic? It just takes a little bit. A little bit of error is destructive and it destroys the purity of the truth. You can't compromise, or excuse me, you can't balance truth with error. So we see this, these kinds of contrasts in scripture and it is, it, this section points this out because it's building to something. One of the questions that I like to ask, we all should ask when we read scriptures, why is this here? Of all the things that happened in the ancient world, of all the things that happened throughout the history of Israel, why does God tell us about this? What is significant that we have to understand about these loser priests? Obviously, they weren't the only loser priests in Israel. They weren't the only apostate abusive priests in the history of the Old Testament. And there are probably a number of abusive apostate prince, uh, priests in the history of Israel that are not mentioned in the Scripture at all. So why this this focus on Hophni and Pinchas, why is God telling us about them? Why are they important? Why is Eli uh, so significant? And part of that that we'll look at this evening is that there's something else going on here besides just sort of the surface uh, narrative that God is changing things in Israel. And as I pointed out in terms of our uh, overarching theme in Samuel is God is bringing something redemptive to the nation. They're starting off in, in, in the worst case, the worst situation they've ever been in. They're at the end of the period of the judges. The period of the judges is characterized by today what we would call uh, postmodern relativism. 
It wasn't postmodern then, but that's what we call it today. It was just the sin nature out of control where man had elevated himself to the position of deity and was making up his own rules as he went along, and those rules would change with the circumstances so that people did whatever they wanted to do. And twice the writer of Judges says that there was no king in Israel at that time. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. They did whatever was right in the morning might be different in the afternoon. Because when you get away from a solid rock uh, upon which to base your thinking and on which to base your worldview, then what happens is the culture moves to that which is unstable and that which is uncertain and that which has no ability to hold up a solid, productive, fruitful culture. I mentioned on Sunday that I've been reading a book, fascinating a testimony of a, of a woman who is a, an extreme leftist, a radical liberal, feminist, Marxist, lesbian, uh, hated Christianity. In some ways, her testimony, I think, is so, uh, so absorbing to people is because in some ways she's reading her testimony is like reading the conversion of the Apostle Paul. Here's a man, the Apostle Paul, who was dead, hated Christians, persecuted Christians, caused Christians to be executed for their faith, and then when he trusts Christ as Savior, he has a radical worldview shift. And, in fact, he has to take a couple of, uh, about a year or two off to go into isolation in the uh, in the desert to rethink everything that he held to be true because everything he believed about the Old Testament, which was, uh, which was based on the thinking of the, uh, of, the, of the Pharisees at that time, was wrong. It was the wrong framework. It was the wrong grid uh, through which to observe reality. It was a grid that was built off of a human viewpoint works-based scenario that it's that it basically created an idolatry and we've been studying that in uh, the Matthew series on on Sunday morning well this book that uh, she's written her name's uh, Rosaria Champagne Butterfield is insightful a number of ways now there's some weaknesses with this with this book and her theology because when she was saved it was under the influence of a pastor from the Reformed Presbyterian Church. That's a denomination. That's not a theological statement. That's a, that's a specific denomination with specific beliefs, strong five-point, Dordian, Calvinist, very, very conservative uh, biblically in, in a lot of ways, but it, it holds to a view of perseverance that is lordship, not just eternal security, uh, belief that, as most Calvinists, many strong five-point Calvinists do, believe that faith is a gift, that repentance is a gift, and that nobody can have faith in Christ unless God gives them the faith to have in Christ and perseverance. Nobody can, can persevere unless God gives them the gift of perseverance and those kinds of things. But if you look past that, and that's not the focal point, then it's really her thinking, to observe the thinking the pathology, it might be the right word, of the thought shift that takes place from a person who is so radically committed to Marxism and feminism and postmodernism and is teaching this in as an English professor. Now, 
A lot of you may not realize this, but probably the most dangerous department of any university is the English faculty because they are teaching. They're, they're, not, uh, they're not teaching the old canon that was taught 40, 50, 60 years ago. They're teaching a new canon that is specifically designed to change the way especially incoming freshmen think. And, and as she writes, she goes back to explain some of these things, which I find uh, interesting because it gives us a little bit of a window on what's really going on in academia. I know a lot of people who have basically have their head in the sand. And remember that time period that she's talking about was, um, was 20 years ago back in the in the mid 90s and she uh was hired and achieved tenure at Syracuse University Syracuse New York which was a strong radical leftist school and after she was saved about a year after she was saved she took a sabbatical and she got a job teaching at Geneva College down in Pennsylvania which was a reformed uh college and seminary, and she was teaching literature there, and she hasn't been saved that long, so she really hasn't quite grasped what her new identity in Christ is, as opposed to what her identity was as a Marxist, radical Marxist, leftist, feminist, uh, postmodernist, and so she's she's trying to sort of get her new sea legs uh, under her, and as she's getting ready to teach in the in the course there, and she's quite bright. She's teaching on Christian hermeneutics, and I want to set up something that she says, and I want to read the paragraph before it. She says, as a feminist scholar, so referring back to what she was before she was was saved, this concept of a worldview was the most important concept in my intellectual arsenal. See, a lot of Christians don't even grasp what a worldview is, and if you don't, you're toast. That's that's the weapon your enemy is using against you, and you're out there without your Kevlar vest on because you don't understand the danger. And your Kevlar vest is the Word of God, but as, as Paul says, we're, we're taking captive every thought for Christ. And if you don't understand certain vocabulary and concepts today, then you don't know what the enemy is you're supposed to be taking captive. So she says, um, worldview is the most important concept in my intellectual arsenal. Worldview is central to feminist studies and to any field of study that analyzes oppressed or marginalized people. As soon as you hear terminology like that, you immediately need to recognize they're coming from a Marxist position. It helps us to understand how interpretations come from the frames of intelligibility that we use to look at the events that matter. See, we all have these grids that we impose on data, but you can change them. See, in postmodernism, you can't really change those grids. That's part of the problems in hermeneutics today is the idea they have of this pre-understanding of the reader, and they don't really think that can be changed. But but she changed, I changed, You can. everybody can change. So she says, it helps us to understand how interpretations come from the frames of intelligibility that we use to look at the events that matter. Critical perspective, that's another key term in feminist Marxist uh, postmodern academia. They have courses called just critical perspective, teaching students how to think like a radical Marxist feminist 
uh, gay rights ad- activists, whatever. She says, critical perspective asserts that we make meaning out of our lives not by personal experience, but by the frames through which we filter that experience. In my Women's Studies 101 syllabus, that's what she taught when she was at, at Syracuse before she was a believer, that Women's Studies 101, first semester, I wrote this about critical perspective. This is what was in the syllabus. Note bene, which means to note well. This is in the syllabus telling students what they can expect in class. It's students are expected to write all papers and examination essay questions from a feminist worldview or critical perspective. Think about that. You go to class, you sign up, it's a required course. I had a young young gal, 18 years old, came out of Preston City Bible Church, went to University of Connecticut, had to take a women's studies course just like this her first semester some 15 years ago and got hammered with this same thing. This is real. Why in the world anybody wants to send as a Christian, as a conservative Bible-believing Christian, wants to send their kids into this kind of a war zone without properly preparing them, I don't know. Probably because they don't understand how overt this is. She says, um, students are expected to write all papers and examination essay questions from a feminist worldview or critical perspective. In Spanish class, you speak and think in Spanish. In women's studies, you speak and think in feminist paradigms. Examination essay questions written from critical perspectives outside of feminism will receive an automatic grade of F. Papers written from from critical perspectives outside of feminism will be allowed one revision. Any student who is unable to write and think from a feminist critical perspective or worldview with a clear conscience should drop this class now. This isn't exceptional. This is standard operating procedure in every Ivy League school, University of Texas, Probably more of your favorite universities have people in their faculties who are teaching like this than you would dream of. It's your worst nightmare, people. We're living in a world where the halls of academia are dominated by the people about whom that verse in Judges is written. There's no king. There's no authority other than their own authority. And they are out to change the way your children your grandchildren think. That is their raison d'etre. I've got some other quotes from her about how she and her colleagues would sit around and read things written by those who held to traditional family, traditional marriage, and they would sit around and laugh and ridicule and heap scorn and make fun of Christians who believed these things. And they would do this all day long. See, if it got out that Christians said this about leftists, oh, it would be terrible. We would, we would be vilified in the public square, and we are vilified in the public square. But they can do this all day long, and nobody even reports it. She gives us such a window at times in what's going on. Well, that's the kind of thing that was going on in Israel at the time of the judges and at the time of Samuel. But guess what? As bad as it was then and as bad as it is now, God's grace can change things. It's not something that we should get discouraged, depressed, or hopeless about. 
God changed things then, and God can change things now. And what we're reading about in Samuel is how God changed things. And he did it because there was some obscure woman who was faithful to God and who prayed to God, who dedicated her son to God, and God used that to bring a leader into Israel that would change things. And that's what we need to pray for, is that God would raise up leaders like Samuel, like David, like Paul, others who can have that kind of an impact. That's why I call this Feckless Fools and God's Faithful Prophecies, because what this section really tells us is how faithful God is. We always have to look at life scenarios as believers from the grid of God's word. The Bible is that book. We should read the Bible. One of the things I think that really transformed this woman is that in her at her beginning, she was trying to write a book to just discredit the Christian right, to just blast evangelicals. But she knew that she needed to read the Bible. And I've heard some interviews online with her. She reads the Bible five, six, seven times a year. I'm just trying to get people to read five or six verses a day. No, I'm kidding. Five or six chapters a day. If, we not, if we're not doing that, we're like a soldier who wants to go into combat without ever going through boot camp, without ever learning how to break down his weapon, without ever learning how to clean it. The Bible is our weapon. The Bible is not only our weapon, it's what informs us and shapes our thinking, and we need to be in it ten times more than we are. We just get too busy. We need to get rid of a lot of distractions and spend a lot more time just reading the Bible. And we'll learn a lot of things. Now, one of the things that happens here, we sort of have a picture in this last half of how God is going to bring judgment on the house of Eli. I've got, I want to front load this a little bit, and then we will see how this happens, and then we'll finish out the chapter probably the next, the next time. But you've heard me in the past talk about ways in which we know that God's word is true. Not because certain things prove God's word is true in the sense of a, uh, of a, of a logical syllogism, but because certain things are validated. You have prophecies that were made hundreds of years in advance that come true to the very detail of the prophecy. Some of these, those we have looked at in the past. This is one of those prophecies that is in process of being fulfilled in this chapter. So I need to show you, this is the middle. It's sort of like the beginning was earlier in Numbers 25. This is the middle, the transition. And then by the time we get to the end of Second Samuel and the beginning of First Kings, you see the final fulfillment of that prophecy. But the prophecy is made back in Numbers, Numbers chapter 25. And the issue whenever we face challenges, problems, or things that need to be changed is to go the character of God. And we are reminded of God's essence of who he is, and that he is veracity. I've highlighted two things there, which means he is absolute truth. This is why Jesus can say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. This is the cutting edge of the difference between a biblical worldview and a non-biblical worldview, is that we believe that there is absolute truth that is unshakable and unchangeable. God is immutable. He never changes. His word is always true. He, it is sufficient that if God is powerful enough to make us the way we are, he's powerful enough to change us into what he wants us to be. 
And we have too many people running around who just don't think that God has the power to do anything, and they're living lives that are failures because they're not appropriating the tools, the methods, the promises, the provisions that God has given us, that God has given us in His in His Word. One of the great passages in Scripture that is often quoted that talks about this character of God is Numbers twenty three nineteen, where we read, "God is not a man that he should lie." What attribute of God does that emphasize? His veracity. He is truthful. God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of a man that he should repent. What does that mean? Do a word substitution that he should change. God doesn't change. He's immutable. He does not change. Has he said and will he not do? You can count on him. He will fulfill his word. Or has he spoken and will he not make it good? He will. He will fulfill that. So, as we look at this passage, though, we have to recognize that this comes out of the mouth of one of the strangest people uh, in the Old Testament, a character by the name of Balaam. What most people remember about Balaam, if they remember anything at all, is that his donkey spoke to him. Balaam was a soothsayer. He would hire out his services, but he had some gift of prophecy. And so he's hired by Israel's enemies. Now, I got distracted with a phone call today, and I got halfway through fixing this map and didn't. But here we have Israel that comes along following this red line here, and that's their route of travel. They went around Edom in the south. Right down here is Basra. That's near where Petra is located. They went around that uh, awfully barren landscape, headed north, into the territory of Moab, then past Moab and up into the territory of, of Ammon, and they came near Mount Nebo. Mount Nebo is where Moses died, went up after his final message in Deuteronomy uh, to, to the Israelites. He went up to Mount Nebo where he died. God gave him a look across the uh, west, across the uh, Dead Sea, and across the Jordan where he could see all of the land that God had promised him. This area just to the north uh, in this fl- the flats down here from Mount Nebo down towards Jericho, this area here is called the Plains of Moab. This was where Moses had his final address, uh, address to the people. And it was there that we just read the episodes that took place as Balak... Brings who's the king of Moab brings Balaam over from somewhere in the area of modern uh, modern uh, Baghdad, somewhere in modern Iraq, and he's hiring him. He's a prophet for hire to come over and to curse Israel. But God won't let him do that. And first, God says you can't even go, and then he man- he convinces God to let him go, and God uh, takes him. But he's going to block him, and that's the episode with his talking donkey. And and, and that donkey sees the angel who's blocking his path, and the the donkey talks to him and says, you know, why are you beating me? Because he keeps beating the donkey to get past the angel. And so that that whole strange little episode. But then Balaam couldn't curse Israel. Every time he started to do so, he would just pronounce a blessing on Israel. And those, those four oracles or those four blessings are given in Numbers chapter 23 and 24. 
And then he did do one thing, though. Numbers 31, 16 says that he did counsel Balak that the way to defeat the Israelites, he couldn't curse them, but if you would just turn all your women loose, all the temple prostitutes loose, and let them get into the camp of the Israelites and seduce all the men, then you will destroy them. And this episode takes place in Numbers uh, chapter 25, which is a passage we will hopefully get to tonight to pull all of this together. What happens is God brings judgment on Israel because they are, uh, as the text says, they are practicing harlotry with the women of Moab. And they are involved in just having this huge sexual orgy And God brings judgment down on the Israelites at that point. And one of the figures who's critical to ending this judgment and ending and killing the last of the Moabite uh, women is a priest whose name is, like uh, like the bad priest we're studying in chapter 2, his name's Pinchas, and he's the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron. Now, I'm pronouncing it correctly. It's Eleazar the English puts an extra E in the name, Eliezer, but there's no second E in the Hebrew. It's Eleazar. And there's no, it's like the second E in, or the first E in Phinehas. It's not, it's silent in Hebrew. It's Pinchas. And so we have Pinchas, the son of Eleazar, and he is going to end this. And as a result of that, God gives him the promise of an everlasting covenant. Now, we've gone through the eternal covenants. We've talked about the uh, Noahic covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, and the new covenant, and the Davidic covenant, and the land covenant, all these different covenants. But we've never talked about this eternal priest covenant with the house of Pinchas. And so we're going to look at that some tonight uh, because that's the backdrop for understanding why this transitional chapter here the at the end of chapter 2 why this is so important and this judgment that God is bringing on the house house of Eli so we see this contrast in this chapter between the horrors and the abusiveness that comes from the from these priests who have compromised with paganism we saw the same thing at the end of judges And at the end of Judges, you see that the Israelites have become worse and they become more abusive than the Canaanites. They are out Canaaniting the Canaanites because once you shift away from a biblical worldview, you no longer have a rock to stand on in terms of your thinking. And so when they sink into the morass of moral relativism, then your culture becomes absolutely perverted and the ultimate The ultimate standard is what's best for me. It always deteriorates when it's down to uh, doing what's right in my eyes. What matters is my eyes. I'm going to do what I want to do and to hell with everybody else. And this is exactly what has happened. We see this self-absorption come along. And when when you get any individual or group of people where the ultimate value is self-absorption, then you get into uh, where, where they are just fulfilling all of those desires. They get into self-indulgence. And as they get into self-indulgence, anything goes, and it's all about being able to justify and rationalize their, their self-centeredness. And this is exactly what happens. When truth is apostatized, 
then freedom is lost because freedom can only come when you're operating on the basis of truth, God's truth, not man's truth. And once freedom is lost, then abuse of all kinds flourishes. This is what happens. Go back and listen to the Judges series. I trace this. As you go through, as the nation of Israel became more and more apostate, more and more relativized, more and more into moral relativism, then you see the increase of the, uh, of just total gender confusion, reversal of roles. You see the rising and increasing abuse of women until you get to the last judge, and he's just an, an immoral womanizer, and that's Samson, as opposed to the judges at the very beginning, like Othniel, who had a high view of women and treated women with respect. You get to the end of the book, and they're abusing women. Uh, they're, uh, uh, you have the story of the priest who goes... Um, who goes to uh, Gibeah of, of Benjamin, and he is just just they they want to rape his his concubine, and he ends up giving her to them. I mean, you just see this absolute uh, horrors that have taken place in their culture as they just reach the the absolute bottom of the barrel, and what we see is that in paganism and under its influence, when you take God out of the picture, the result is totally destructive. And we see this in microcosm in what Phinehas, Pinhas, and Hophni have done to the worship of God. Now let's just go through this and sort of summarize it, give you the structure of this section, starting in verse 11. We see, as I pointed out again, in, in the history of the Bible, in any history, you always have a hero. When you study Greek history, who's the hero? The Greeks. You study Roman hero, Roman history, who's the hero? The Romans. You study the Bible, who's the hero? Not the Jews. It's God. So we try to think, and I try to express my outlines always in terms of what God is doing. Now, sometimes you can't, when you get down to the most, uh, you know, sub, sub, sub points, you might not be able to do that, but most of the time you can. So in verse 11, what we see is Yahweh is now being served by, uh, by Samuel. Second part of verse 11, the child ministered to the Lord before Eli the priest. And it's an unusual word for minister there, and it indicates a high level of service. Then the next section is going to contrast the, the paganism, the self-centeredness, the corruption, the evil of Eli's uh, feckless sons who are feckless fools, and it's a contrast. They're serving themselves, whereas Samuel is serving the Lord. And that's in First Samuel chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. The next section, we see that Yahweh blesses Hannah and the family, Hannah, her family, and Samuel. In First Samuel 2, 18 through 21, and we get the first progress report of three about Samuel that that the child Samuel grew before the Lord. And then the fourth section goes from verses 22 down through 25. And in this section, Yahweh determines to judge the house of Eli. And we see that in the last clause of verse 25, that... that um, uh, Eli tried to intervene. He tried to straighten out his, his boys, and they won't listen to him. And we're told they did not heed the voice of their father because the Lord desired to kill them. It was God's will that they be executed. 
by him, the sin unto death, because they have gone too far in their rebellion. It's not that he's negated their free will. It's that they have freely chosen to rebel against God, and it's reached a point where it's locked in, and there's no recovery, and God is going to execute them in a tremendously dramatic way to indicate that he is judging the corruption of the house of Eli to bring about the fulfillment of this prophecy from Numbers 25. And then the fifth part is we see uh, that God's blessing of Samuel is evident to all. This is a second progress report in verse 26. And the child Samuel grew in stature and in favor both with the Lord and men. Does that sound familiar to anybody? It ought to, if you know your Bible, you ought to be saying, that sounds like what they, what Luke says about Jesus in Luke 2.52, that he grew in wisdom and in stature and in favor with both God and man. That is a phenomenal statement. Luke's patterning what he said on what is said about Samuel in verse, verse 26. And then we read the sixth section, is the long section from verse 27 to 36, Yahweh sends a prophet to announce the judgment upon the house of Eli. This is the first of two judgment announcements. The second one comes in chapter 3. Okay, so we start off in 1 Samuel 2.11 that Elkanah went to his house at Ramah. So he goes home after they've taken Samuel. They brought him down. Uh, they leave him with Eli. And then we're told that the child ministered to Yahweh before Eli the priest. And the word there is not a word we might expect. The normal word for working or serving somebody is the Hebrew word avad. And that would be uh, cover a, a whole range of situations. But here it's the word sharet. And this should catch the attention of a reader of Scripture because this is used not just of the the service of a priest to the Lord in the tabernacle or the temple, but it is used of, of court officials who are serving an emperor or serving a king. It is a high level of service. It, in, it emphasizes the value and the significance of this kind of service. And so what we read here is that Samuel is he begins to serve the Lord, and this forms the theme of this section, which contrasts his service with the rebelliousness and the self-servicenes of the sons of Eli. In First Samuel two eighteen, which starts the next section, there's one verse positively about Samuel, then verses 12 through 17 are the negatives about the sons of Eli, and then we come back to verse 18 to start talking about Samuel again, and notice how it picks up from verse 11. So I put both of those on the screen for you so you can see those. But Samuel ministered before the Lord. Notice there's a little difference. And verse 11 says he ministered to the Lord before Eli the priest, which indicates that he is being uh, observed and supervised by Eli. But by verse 18, he is ministering before the Lord on his own. He has learned, he's probably, his time has gone by. He is not a small child anymore. He may be 9, 10, 11 years of age, but he has a little more responsibility and capability. 
and I've retranslated that, making it a little more clear. That's the statement in brackets. But Samuel ministered or served before the face of Yahweh. So he is serving before Yahweh, uh, a child wearing a linen ephod. And a linen ephod was a special garment. It might look just like a, a robe or a long T-shirt type of thing uh, today that was uh, signified priestly service. So he had on a, uh, a, a linen ephod. Then we get to the next section. And in this section, we see that Yahweh is treated contemptuously. Remember in the Ten Commandments, there's a, a little prohibition said, Thou shalt not take the Lord's name in vain. A lot of people think that that is limited to just using God as a pro, profane, as some form of profanity or using the name of Jesus Christ as profanity. That would be one of the most superficial ways you could apply that prohibition. It is, it's used a lot by Christians. Probably we find it in churches a lot. Whenever people says, well, this is God's will for my life. What we've done is we've said, this is what God wants me to do. We've taken God's name and we've used it as a way to uh, validate what we want to do. That's what that verse is talking about. Don't assign the name of God to a project that God hasn't authorized. Don't swear that you'll tell the truth in the name of God and you're not going to tell the whole truth and nothing but the truth. That's taking the Lord's name in vain or treating God contemptuously. That would be a form of violation of, of that commandment. So this is what is going on here, is that they are uh, treating God uh, contemptuously. They're blaspheming him. They are... Um, in complete opposition to him. Now, I want you to look at, at these verses. I just want to read these five verses to you. Now, the sons of Eli were corrupt. They did not know the Lord. That, word, that phrase translated, Eli, were corrupt. It, literally, it, the sons of Eli were the sons of Belial. I'll talk about that in a minute. They were real SOBs. They were the sons of Belial. But there's a play on words there, because if they are the sons of Belial and Eli's their father, then there is an insult there to Eli that Eli is playing the devil's role. So there's there's a there's a charge there a a subtle charge against Eli. Now the sons of Eli were the sons of Belial; they did not know the Lord, and the priest's custom with the people was that. When any man offered a sacrifice, the priest's servant would come with a three-pronged flesh hook in his hand while the meat was boiling. Then he would thrust it into the pan or the kettle or the cauldron or pot, and the priest would take for himself all that the flesh hook brought up. So they did in Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Also, before they burned the fat, the priest's servants would come and say to the man who sacrificed, Give meat for roasting to the priest, for he will not take boiled meat from you but raw. And if the man said to him, they should really burn the fat first, in other words, they should do it the correct way and burn the fat first instead of ta- and give it to God rather than take it for themselves, then you may take as much as your heart desires. 
Uh, he would then answer him, no, but you must give it now, and if not, I'll take it by force. What he's saying is you have one person who objects and says you're not doing it the right way, and the way he would be answered is with this resounding no, uh, give it now, and if not, I'm going to beat it out of you. It's a strong threat of physical violence that if they don't give up the goods, then the priests are going to beat it out of them. So it's a very abusive situation truly evil. Therefore, the sin of the young men, we're told, was very great before the Lord, for men abhorred the offering of the Lord. Those five verses lead to that conclusion. That's what it's all about, is that they are showing contempt to the Lord. They are engaged in such a self-absorbed culture that what we learn from this is when you are engaged in self-absorption, when you're letting your sin nature run free, and we all do that in different ways, there are ways in which we're comfortable with our enemy, and there are ways that we're not. We want to fight the sin nature when we know it's really bad, but when it's really comfortable and our sin nature's in our comfort zone, we want to cozy up to the sin nature, much like President Obama is cozying up to Iran. What are, as conservatives, what do we think we ought to do with Iran? Bomb the hell out of it. What do you think you ought to do with your sin nature? Oh, well, you know, we've just been friends for such a long time. We're just so comfortable. We just like each other so much. It works for me a lot of times. You know, that's not what Paul says. Let's run through a few points before I get into that. First of all, the values of a self-absorbed culture blind the person to the realities of life. The more self-absorbed you are, the more you're blind to reality. The more divorced from reality you become, because it, the more and more it becomes all about you, 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 you forget everybody else. You think about everything goes around uh, around you just in terms of what it means to you. The second thing we see in self-absorption in a relativized culture is it always leads to self-indulgence. And self-indulgence, by its very concept, destroys morality. It destroys absolutes. Self-indulgence destroys self-control and self-mastery. And therefore, if you don't have self-control and self-mastery, you won't have virtue and integrity. So self-indulgence cannot exist alongside of integrity and virtue. They are mutually exclusive. We have to get rid of the self-absorption. Third point of observation is that a culture that has replaced an objective morality with subjective relativism will always implode. It will self-destruct. If you don't believe it, just pay attention to what I read in, in from, from Rosaria Butterfield earlier and what she's saying is going on as the, as the objective in our universities today to destroy the thinking of our students. Now, they don't think of it as destroying it. They think they're enlightening them. But it's destructive. Fourth thing, the only thing that someone who serves the Lord can do is to put to death the works of the sin nature. That's our objective. It's a seek and destroy mission. Now, we fail, and we can use 1 John 1, 9 and recover, but 
the sin nature is the enemy. So we need to have search and destroy. Look at what Paul says in Romans 6. Romans 6, 7, he said, For he who has died has been freed from sin. Now he's going to go on to say that if you yield to your sin nature, you're enslaving yourself again. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands. How many of us are comfortable serving the sin nature? More of us would raise our hands than, than we would want to, and more times we would want to raise our hands than, than, than we want to. It's comfortable, but we're either serving the sin nature. We're back to that binary equation again. You're either serving your sin nature or you're serving the Holy Spirit. Those are the only two options. You are not an option. Okay, some people say, well, I'm just doing what I think is best. No, you're not the option. Your I is the sin nature. Okay, you're either serving the sin nature or you're serving God. Those are the only options. And most of us don't do such a good job of that. He who has died has been freed from sin. Now, if we die with Christ, and we did, first class condition, we believe that we shall also live with him. We believe we have new life in Christ. Then he says, likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey its lust. Notice the absolutes here. And don't present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin. Let's go back to verse 11. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead. Look at the mandates here. Reckon yourselves. Consider yourselves. Think about yourselves as dead to sin. Do we wake up in the morning and say, I am dead to my sin nature? I'm done with it. I don't want to have anything to do with it. It's out of here. I've got to be controlled by the Holy Spirit today. Five minutes later, we're going, well, you know, it's kind of easy. We do a better job getting sugar out of our diet than the sin nature out of our life. Reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Second pan, don't let sin reign in your mortal body. Paul is saying, don't do it. Quit it. Do we have to? It's comfortable. Then he says, don't present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin. And then verse 14 says, for sin shall not have dominion over you. Those are That's strong language. Well, we, have, we believe in grace. Grace is not an excuse to sin. Grace enables us to recover from sin and to not lose our salvation because we fail. I read an article a couple of weeks ago on, uh, on the Internet somewhere, and it was talking about the fact that one of the things that needs to be taught to seniors is how to recover from a fall. Because many seniors are weak and they don't know how, if they fall down, they don't know how to get back up. And they don't have a way to call. They don't have an emergency thing. There are a number of these things that you can get, but some people can't afford them because they're, they're expensive. And there are cases where people lie on the floor for hours or days before somebody discovers that they've fallen down. A lot of Christians are like that. We don't know how to get up. Most of us do. We get up by using 1 John 1, 9. But unfortunately, too many of us get up and we fall right away. We're spending most of our time getting up and falling down, getting up and falling down, getting up and falling down instead of walking by the Spirit. That's the focal point. It is that The emphasis isn't on recovery. The em- emphasis is on staying recovered, abiding in Christ goes on in verse 16 to talk about the fact that that there's a juxtaposition between who we serve. We either serve righteousness or we're serving ourselves. 
before we were saved, we were slaves to our sin nature. Romans 6.16, Paul says, Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey? You are the ones slaves whom you obey, either sin, whether of sin leading to death or obedience leading to righteousness. Did you notice there's not a third option? You're either a slave to God or a slave to your sin nature. One or the other, you choose. And we do that a thousand times every day. And what Paul is thankful for, God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart. In verse 18, having been set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. We need to stay that way. So we look at verse 12. Now the sons of Eli were corrupt. They're called the sons of Belial. They did not know the Lord. Now, again, we have to look at this particular a couple of these phrases here. First of all, that phrase, the sons of Belial, is in direct contrast to what Hannah says and back in verse 16. But in neither place does it translate it the same or does it translate the sons of Belial. So people miss the point. In verse 16, when Hannah has gone to pray and make her vow to the Lord, Eli sees her lips moving and thinks that she's drunk. And she goes on to, in her defense in verse 16. She says, don't consider your maidservant a wicked woman. It's not what she said. She said, don't consider your maidservant a daughter of Belial. He would, he would know what a daughter or son of Belial looked like because he's got two of them. See, this is the contrast. Hannah's not a daughter of Belial, but his sons are sons of Belial. Now, in the Old Testament, that phrase Belial is used 27 times. It's never used for a personal name for Satan in the Old Testament like it is in the New in 2 Corinthians 6.15, but it refers to wickedness or worthlessness or corruption or an evil person in the Old Testament. In the Psalms, it's often associated with death and with Sheol. By the time you get into the Second Temple period after the return from Babylon, uh, Belial becomes a, a stock idiom for wickedness or an evil person, and it became a nickname uh, for Satan, and it's especially used that way in the Dead Sea Scrolls. So these are the, the sons of Eli, comma, the sons of, of Belial. And when it says they don't know the Lord, that's a phrase that's used nine times in the Old Testament. And this is a phrase that means they didn't have respect or regard for the Lord. It's not a soteriological phrase. It doesn't mean they're not saved. It means they have no respect for God, and they have no regard uh, for the Lord. It's the opposite in the Old Testament is to fear the Lord. That's the beginning of wisdom. But fearing the Lord isn't a salvation term any more than not knowing the Lord. So this is a, a description. Now, in the last five or ten minutes, I want to kind of run through our understanding of why this priestly family is going to get hammered like this. Uh, this this is a, one of those great little prophecies. It's a little more in-depth than what we see in the fulfillment of some prophecies, but it shows that God's in control, even in the midst of all the chaos. And that's something we can take home and be reminded about every single day, especially when we watch the news, that with all the chaos, God is still in control. And it may get a lot more chaotic, and it may get a lot worse. It may get a whole lot worse. But God is still in control. And we can be like Hannah, or we can cave into the culture and be like the sons of Belial. So to get some background here, we have to understand the family of Levi. 
So I spent some time this afternoon and put this little graphic together so that you could see the genealogy of Levi. Levi's at the top. Remember, he's one of the sons of Jacob. Okay, so this covers a lot of time, and this genealogy is given in Exodus chapter 6. And you might want to turn there. We'll go to a couple of different passages real quickly. But in Exodus chapter 6, you have this outline, and it tells us that Levi had three sons, Gershon, Kohath, and Merari. And the line we're really focusing on is the middle one, Kohath. And Kohath has four sons. Now, there's no numbers, there's no ages listed in uh, in Exodus 6, so there are a lot of gaps in these genealogies. It's just sort of sum, a summary of the lineage of, of Aaron and Moses. Kohath has four sons, probably many generations later, Amram, Ejar, Hebron, and Uzil. Now, Amram is the father of Moses and Aaron, and so that's the green line on, the far, on your far left. Ejar is the father of Korah, Korah is also a Levite. All of these are Levites. And Korah, you'll remember, leads a rebellion against Moses. And so there's jealousy between the line of Ejar and the line of Amram. Now, when we go down this line here, we see that Aaron has has four sons. I didn't want to stretch him out across it, so there are four sons, Nadab, Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar. And those four sons are mentioned a few more times in the Old Testament. Nadab, Abihu, Eleazar, Ithamar. Now, Nadab and Abihu are going to wipe out really early. They're going to apostatize and reject God pretty early. And during the wilderness wanderings, they're going to get vaporized by God, just incinerated because they go into the tabernacle and they bring unauthorized fire or unauthorized incense that is, it doesn't come from the holy uh, fire that's inside the temple. That shows that you can't make up your own rules when it comes to worshiping God. We worship God according to his rules, not according to our rules. Eleazar has a son named Pinchas. He's the one that's mentioned in Numbers chapter 25. And eventually there's going to be a priest in his line named Zadok. And Zadok is going to be elevated to the high priesthood in the first uh, first part of, of Solomon's reign. This is why, got to trace all these lines in the Bible, when we come back in the millennial kingdom and we have a millennial temple, who runs the temple? Zadokite priests. It all goes back to understanding what I'm getting ready to tell you. Those Zadokite priests are going are gonna to run the temple. This is significant because Zadok understood holiness. Abi, uh, I mean, uh, uh, Pinchas understood holiness. That's the bottom line. You go down Ithamar's line, you find Eli, and eventually Abiathar. So the first point is we learned that Aaron had four sons, Nadab, Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar. And these are mentioned in um, in Exodus chapter 6, verses 23 to 25. Second thing that we're going, going to learn, I'm going to back up. Second thing that we're going to learn is that the first two sons are 
vaporized by God due to their rebellion against God. This is in Leviticus chapter 10. So Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. Leviticus chapter 10. Leviticus chapter 10 we read, Then Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer, that's his uh, bronze bowl that would carry uh, the coals of fire and the incense uh, to take into the holy place, and they offered profane fire. That, that means common. It has not been sanctified within the temple. And they brought this unauthorized fire and incense before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. People are always trying to add something to God's plan. So the fire went out from the Lord and devoured them, and they died before the Lord. Just like that, they're vaporized. Nothing left. Verse 3, Moses said to Aaron, This is what the Lord spoke, saying, By those who come near me, I must be regarded as holy. God is distinct and unique. He's, he's not common. He's not our best buddy. God is the creator God of the heavens and the earth, and God seeks behavior from his people that is set apart to him. That's sanctification. We are to live our lives set apart to him. So that's what's being depicted here about those who treat God lightly. It reminds us of what event in the New Testament? Those of you who went through Acts, where we have the story of uh, in Acts, uh, Acts chapter 5, the two people who are slain by the Spirit, who are they? Ananias and Sapphira, that's right. Ananias and Sapphira are slain, slain the Spirit because they lied to the Holy Spirit. They said, we're going to give you all the money we got off of our property. Now, there was no reason to lie. Nothing said they had to give all the money, but they wanted to look good. So immediately they died. God is emphasizing that he's a holy God. So two of, two of Aaron's sons are down. We're left with Eleazar and Itamar. The third instance of a rebellion also involves Levites, and that's in the next book in Numbers chapter 16. And then this rebellion, this involves another descendant of Levi. This is Korah. He's a cousin, remember, the line of Korah and later the sons of Korah. So we read in Numbers 16.1, Now Korah, the son of Ezar, so that's him, and it goes through the genealogy, which I'll skip. They rose up before Moses with some of the children of Israel, 250 leaders of the congregation, representatives of the congregation, men of renown. They gathered together against Moses and Aaron. said, you guys are just taking too much authority on yourselves. They were jealous, and so they have this conspiracy. And so Moses fell on his faith. He recognizes this is a violation of the holiness of God. And this is one of the problems I think a lot of folks have. We don't take God's holiness seriously enough. So he spoke to Corey. He says, Tomorrow morning the Lord's going to show who is his and who is holy. Notice the emphasis on his holiness. And he will cause some to come near to him, and the one he chooses he will cause to come near to him. So do this. He said, Corey, you take all you guys, get your censers, and you're going to come and put fire in them, put incense in them. Sounds like a repeat of what happened with Nadab and Abihu. They're going to bring their own unauthorized fire. They're going to try to worship God on their terms. And so... What happens is they come the next day, and I'll skip to the end because it's it, God causes an earthquake and swallows them all up, and he just takes them out of the picture. He ends that rebellion. God's holiness is not going to be uh, be violated. Then we go to our last inc- incident. I know we're running out of time, but I just want to hit this 
very carefully. Numbers 25.11. What has happened is this incident where the Israelites have been infiltrated and seduced by the women of Moab. And so this, this orgy is taking place and God is, the wrath of God comes against them and he begins to turn his anger, his wrath, his judgment against Israel. And Moses orders the judges of Israel to kill all the men who have joined sexually through these temple prostitutes with Baal, the false god of Peor. No compromise with another god. And so they do. But there's one guy who just wants to flaunt it uh, with his uh, temple prostitute, uh, Cosby, and they, uh, they run to a tent. And one guy is going to take care of this, um, and that is Finhas, Pinhas. And we read that because of the fact that he uh, killed her and brought this judgment of God to an end, he killed her with his javelin. In verse 12 we read, or 11, Pinchas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron the priest, has turned back my wrath from the children of Israel because he was zealous with my zeal among them so that I did not consume the children of Israel my zeal. Therefore, say, behold, I give to him my covenant of peace. God establishes a peace covenant with, um, with Pinchas. And it shall be to him and his descendants after him a covenant of an everlasting priesthood because he was zealous for his God and made atonement for the children of Israel. Now, Eli is from the line of Itamar, not the line of Eleazar, not through Pinchas. So what God is going to do when he brings his judgment here is he clears out the line of Itamar, goes back to the line of Eleazar, and Zadok is in that line. And in 1 Kings 2.35, we read that Zadok the priest is made the uh, high priest in the place of Abiathar. And Abiathar was a priest and served at Nob. We'll get to this later on. This is the incident where David is fleeing from Saul, and he goes to the priests at Nob. Uh, this is up uh, near where the Hebrew University is uh, is located uh, to the northeast of the Temple Mount in Israel on Mount Scopus. And so it's not that far from the temple. And David first goes there to get to get some uh, some food for for himself and for his men. And there is a servant of Saul, Doeg the Edomite, who sees David there, goes back and tells on him. And then Saul gets mad and sends his troops after them, and they slaughter all of the priests. It's a massacre. Just, it's violent, it's bloody. They kill all the priests, and one gets away, and that's Abiathar. David later makes him high priest, but he is going to betray David during the Absalom rebellion. And then... Uh, he is going to align himself uh, at the beginning of 1 Kings with Adonijah against Solomon. And that is going to cause him to be taken out of the priesthood and put into exile. So this is the prophecy. God is faithful. He fulfills his word. He fulfills his promise that, that no matter how chaotic it gets, we can always trust in God to solve the problem. And no matter what takes place... God is faithful, 
and his word is true. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things, and may we be reminded of this incident and the significance of this as we see how your grace solves the problems of paganism and carnality in Israel during this time. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.